Um, folks, my name is, is Bill Shannon. We do have a few more minutes, but I do want to um, show you this book, Inve- Evangelism. Uh, it's the book that was put together by the seminary and, uh, and, uh, and the church, and it's for pastor's library. Evangelism. I have a chapter in there on how to evangelize drug addicts. And so if you're in that kind of a ministry and you want to have that kind of a, a help, that may be helpful for you. Uh, because uh, more and more folks are winding up being addicted to different kinds of drugs, not just illegal drugs, but even legal drugs. And so, yes, sir. Oh, sure. Evangelism, how to share the gospel fruitful, uh, faithfully. Faithfully. It's uh, Thomas Nelson, I think. Yeah. Thomas Nelson didn't like my chapter. And so they put in there, in the opinion of the, ed, of the writer. And I, I always thought whatever you wrote was your opinion, right? And I found out they wanted to make sure they had it very clear that uh, that's not their opinion. But uh, it's my opinion. And uh, so we uh, are good with our time here. This is Evangelism Through Counseling Ministry. Evangelism through counseling ministry. Man, I'm not going to give you the how-tos of doing evangelism. I would hope, I would hope that you have the gospel and you know the gospel. I would hope that that would be something that pastors, elders, shepherds would already know. Uh, I just want to give you some ideas of things that are going on in the church that we have to be aware of. And so uh, that's the fastest clock I'm going to go by that one. So why don't we have a word of prayer? (laughs) Father God, thank you for today, Lord. Uh, Thank you for your grace in each of our lives, Lord, Uh, for those who are here, for those who are live streaming, for those who want to be here, Lord. We know that uh, your providence is working all things. Dear God, I pray for these men. Uh, They will be assaulted, if we could put it that terms, with the gospel, assaulted with the idea of, of the church and how important it is. And I pray, dear Father, that through this message that they will be helped in being able to reach those who are in their church. And we pray this in your name. Amen. I have been counseling for many, many years. I've been on staff here for nearly 34 years. I've been at this church for over 40 years. And so I've seen the ministry here at Grace Church grow. When they said the original um, Shepherds Conference, we used to have two of them. We used to have one in uh, March. We used to have one in October. We had 400 men. They all fit in the uh, gymnasium. We served dinner for everybody. I mean, that's the way it was run. We had lunch in there for them. It was kind of neat, uh, kind of uh, quaint, but now it's uh, 4,500, 5,000. One of the most important issues, though, men, when you're doing biblical counseling, is to find out, is this person that I am engaged with a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? There's no more important question anywhere. Are they truly a Christian, a believer? Um, That's the most important thing that you could find out. And so I always ask for their testimony. And after they even give me their testimony, I'm still not assured that they're really a believer, sometimes. 
Sometimes I know they're not, just by their testimony. So it's important, because you can't counsel someone who is not a believer. It's impossible to counsel them. And how do we know that? Because they're dead. They're not mostly dead. (laughs) They're all the way dead. Our counseling to an unbeliever is shallow. It's going to be ineffective. And literally, if I could say this, it falls on dead ears. And that's sad, because some of us do counsel dead people. There are so many folks that are in the church today that believe they know Jesus Christ, that articulate how they know Jesus Christ. When, when I'm just thinking of, I was just telling this to some friends. Uh, somebody came in and, and he was looking to become a member of Grace Church. And I, I said, well, I need to hear your testimony. And this was his testimony. He said, well, when I was a child, I had a dream that I went to heaven and I saw Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Then he started talking about some other things, about where he worked and all of this kind of stuff. And I, I said, well, was that his testimony? I went back to it and I said, could you give me your testimony? And he said, nobody's ever questioned me on my testimony. I said, can you please tell me? I, maybe I misunderstood it. That was his testimony, that going, having this dream made him a Christian. And he's never been questioned before. In 25 years of being at another church, coming to this church, he's never been questioned. Those people are sitting in our churches. They are. And we have to realize that. And so I, I just wanted to keep asking. I sent him to a class, all of those kinds of things, so that he would at least hear the gospel, try to be able to articulate the gospel. You see, a lot of folks that are in our churches base their relationship on their attendance. They base it on having been baptized. They base it on maybe even their familiarity with Christian lingo. And and they may know even some things to say. You know, if you ask them to write out a testimony, you can generally get a pretty good testimony because they looked at somebody else's paper and they were able to take down what they said. Believe me, I've seen that happen. Maybe they even say they're going to a good church. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's Grace Church. And they say, I'm a Christian because I go there. And uh, there's this old song that if going to a church made you a Christian, going to McDonald's would make you a hamburger. (laughs) So we, we have to eliminate that. It's not just because you go to church. Beyond that, there are some folks who want counseling and they desperately want it because their life is a mess. They're unhappy. I ask, one of the questions I ask is, why do you want this counseling? And I want peace in my family. I want happiness in my family. He says, I'm sorry, I'm not here for that. I said, my counseling may not bring any peace in your life. It may not make you happy. I'm here about making you holy. That's the idea that we're here for, is to grow you as a person that could bring some substance to the body of Christ to be able to help others. I counseled with this a couple of years ago, and, and then I invited them to get into my counseling ministry because now they were ready to do that. And that's what we want to do. 
There are some folks who lack assurance, and we have to note that if we possibly can. What is it about their assurance, the person who keeps worrying about what they're doing in ministry, whether it's good enough or, or not? I, I like to think that person is a Christian. He's just doing a, an, um, a self uh, look at himself. I see that as uh, Psalm 139, uh, verse uh, 25, 23. Uh, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. David says that about himself. And previous to that, he's talking about God's omniscience, God's omnipresence. And, and so he's wanting to have that kind of look. And maybe that counsel he is there for that reason. That would be good. But let me encourage you. For you to have a vital ministry, a vital counseling ministry you need to make sure that the people you're counseling are really Christians and not jump to the next thing to make them a better person. People in this country are in trouble. I don't, if you watch the news, and I do, and I probably should confess that and repent of it, <laughs> but I watch it and I see this world that seems to be crumbling around us. Uh, some of the things that are being fostered on the church and fostered onto our society. It's frightening. Our people are getting scared. They're in fear of a lot of things. They need our help. But again, we can only help those who are truly His. Years ago, I had a man come into my office, and he said, uh, for 15 years I've been going to a psychologist. Nearly every week for 15 years... Of course, I asked him, how much were you paying? 75 bucks a trip. Could you imagine? $75? And this was, this was his words, quote, I am still the same rotten bloke. So 15 years didn't help him. They're out there running around trying to get that help, but they can't find it. They keep knocking on a lot of different doors, but they can't get it. One day, a, a couple came in looking for help. This was their introduction to me. They said, we used to live together, but we're no longer living together. Well, hmm, that's interesting. They had gone down to the hospital down the street here, Mission Hospital. And they went in there, and, and I guess one of the nurses there just said, oh, I can't help you, but Bill Shanniket, and she used my name. I want to get that removed from the hospital. And they came down, and I happened to have some free time. So I said, come on up. Let me talk to you. And I said, your problem is not that you need to get back to living together. Your problem is that you're separated from God. That's your problem. I was able to freely give them the gospel and introduce them to the kingdom of God and what that meant. They didn't need to get back together. They needed to get together with God. Their problem and, and solution wasn't to live together. It was a relationship with the living God. And that's what we need even for a people who say that they're Christians. One time this young couple came into counseling with me. This is years ago as well. They had uh, just started attending Grace Community Church. I asked them if they would give me their testimonies like I always do and it's always ladies first, because I, I think I try to still be a gentleman. 
And the ladies goes first, and after she got finished, I just wondered whether she was a Christian. I just kept it open like that. He gave me his testimony, but at the end of his testimony, he said, but I don't believe that Jesus is God. And I said, well, you made it easy for me. (laughs) You're not a Christian. He didn't like me saying that to him. He liked being called a Christian. You know why? Because he's not a Hindu. He's not a Jew. He's not a Muslim. But he liked the idea of being called a, a Christian. I said, no, you're not a Christian. And that was interesting, trying to counsel this couple about their marriage, and at the same time, him arguing with me about being a Christian. But I gave him some good things to read. The gospel, okay? We kept going over it and over it and over it. And each week we would debate, and we'd have those kinds of things. But then I'd try to show him how he's supposed to, husband's supposed to love their wives like Christ loves the church. Why does Christ in here if he's not God? So we debated for six weeks, challenged him to study, challenged him to read. That marriage continued to fail. He wasn't a believer yet. Weeks later, I got to baptize the man. But his wife walked out on him because she wasn't that Christian. And, and that testimony, which sounded okay, because of her years of being in the church, was not a real testimony. See, if you're dead, you're not believers, and and it's hard to fix those marriages. You can't fix those marriages. They're still going to be uh, unable to come to the place where they can live in harmony. You see, a Christian's marriage, a Christian's life, is different than the world. Completely different. I asked this police officer once how he came to Christ. And he says, I I, I looked across the street and I saw this family with their husbands loving the wife, the children obeying the parents, and I got sick and tired of it. And so I wanted to know what he had. Went across the street and the man said, this is what I have, come on in. And he gave him the gospel and that's how he got saved. You see, our lives, our doors should be knocked on much more often People wanting to come in and say, what do you have? Because my life's a mess. That's what the gospel does. But if you're dead, you're not believers, you can't fix that marriage, it's still not going to be any good, no matter how much time and effort you put into it. And i got to tell you, man, I have put in lots of time and effort for marriages to keep them together when the people aren't saved because I pray to God that they would get saved. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. We have to believe that, that when we're trying to counsel folks for their life, that maybe they're not believers. Now, I want you to know, I'm not there as an accuser, Okay, I'm there to try to point out for them where they're falling short so that they would see what they need. And it is the gospel. When I first uh, began counseling years and years ago, I endeavored to counsel this couple. I knew the couple. I thought, oh, I can help them. But they began to express some serious, serious problems in their marriage. They've been married for 25 years. I met with them over and over and over and over again. Not only did I meet with them, but then I would 
make a date with the guy to go take him out to breakfast to talk to him. Your wife wants the toilet fixed. <laughs> Fix the toilet. I said, I can't fix the toilet, but I can, know, I can find the phone number of the guy who can fix the toilet. That's all you have to do. She's, it would make her happy if you did that. He was disagreeable. In my 40 weeks, let's say it was 40 weeks of counseling with them, no growth, nothing. It, it caused, caused me to begin to question, was it me? I mean, it could be. I, I want to be honest. Was it me? Was it the Word of God? Of course not. Is it not powerful enough? Is the Spirit not powerful enough? Of course it is. What's the problem? I was trained in biblical counseling here at Grace Church, 1991, somewhere around there, 1990, 92, somewhere around there. I'd been through seminary, so I knew seminary. I knew all of those kinds of things. I knew the theology. Knowing that it wasn't the Word, knowing that it was sufficient for all situ- situations, spiritual situations, I called up the man who trained me, and he was back in Lafayette, Indiana, Dr. Bob Smith. Some of you may know him today. He's in heaven. And I said, Bob, I, I just can't get through to this couple I've been counseling with them. I I said, they go to Grace Community Church. That must make them saved, right? (laughs) I said, Bob, they're in my Sunday school class. That must make them saved, right? And you know what, Bob? They actually come on Sunday evening. That must certainly make them saved, right? (laughs) Bill, are you sure? Bill, are you certain? Are they really saved? That's what he kept putting into my mind. Are they truly Christians? It's not just because of their attendance. It's not just because they come at those special times or, or whatever it is. He put in my mind, they're not saved. You see, I had assumed because they're in my church, John MacArthur's church, that they're under good teaching all the time, that they must be saved. But just their church attendance does not make them saved. Jay Adams said this in a Theology of Christian Counseling. He said, if you counsel Christians and unbelievers the same way, there's something wrong with your counseling. He goes on, he says this, you're not doing biblical counseling. Indeed, you've missed the most significant point of all. Does the man know Jesus Christ as his Savior or not? There is no more significant question to ask. I I think we need to put that in our hearts sometimes. And I don't mean go right away and start accusing them of not being saved. But at least show them where they are falling short. But just asking the question is not enough. Because many of the folks who attend church may think they are believers. But they don't have a clue. You know, sometimes you ask a person to give you a testimony and they can't give you a testimony. I change it up sometimes. I say, look, if you're at a bus stop and you have five minutes, let's say you have five minutes, and and there's a person next to you that needs to hear the gospel and you can see the bus down the corner, what would you say? Do you know what I get a lot? Crickets. Crickets. I don't get anything because they don't know how to express the gospel. They don't know what to say to a person that's there at the bus stop with them. Charles Spurgeon said this, since uh, 
uh, Steve Lawson started off with Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if you noticed all those illustrations or whatever from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, he said 60% of his church, he said this, 60% of his church was not saved. What was his title? He was Prince of Preachers. 60% of the church was not saved. Do we think it's any better today? Do we think it's any better today? These were adult folks in the church, not the children's ministry. This is Spurgeon's estimation that he did not know the reality of faith in Jesus Christ for these folks, that they truly knew him. Man, I, I didn't get saved until I was 31. I was hell-bent. I knew where I was headed. And, and God grabbed me by the collar and he took me down. That's, yes, there's an experience there. I could say it's the experience, but there was a change in life of what I used to do to what I do. My, my daughter once said to me, said, Dad, I wished I had your testimony. I said, sweetheart, just keep living the Christian life faithfully. She's a pastor's wife now. Danger. No. <laughs> no he's a great guy. Um, I am going to give you some foundational, biblical, theological things to be thinking about. It's not going to be in an outline form. It's not going to be preaching from a text necessarily. But things to think about it. In my study of trying to articulate this, that we need to make sure that these gospel understandings are in the mind of the person we're counseling. They need to know these things. Why do they need to know them? Because they need to know what the gospel really is. John Wolverd, not a name that's used around here very often, but I used it. He wrote this, he said this, quote, First, the unsaved must understand that salvation depends upon faith in Christ. When you're put to the test of bowing to Caesar or to Christ, who do you bow to? When you're put to the test uh, in your life of bowing to sin in your office or to Christ, what do you do? When you're, you've got a, a bottle of liquor and you've got a problem with alcohol and, it, and they're trying to give it to you, and, and how do you make those decisions? What do you choose? Is it faith in Christ? He's going to sustain me. He's going to take care of me. Or do I become worried and fearful and have anxiety and all of those things? And that's what they're coming into your office for. They've got this terrible anxiety. They want help. You see, faith is a gift from God. It, it's a gift from God. It, it's given to some. Uh, what do we call it? The remnant? But having faith in the Son of God also causes us to change. We don't remain like we used to be. We don't do the same things that we used to do. I, frankly, I ask myself, why did he choose me? I have no idea. I still don't. You see, failure to comprehend the, the nature and the clear understanding of regeneration 
inhibits that person from growth, I believe. There's a needing to have an understanding of the gospel for those people. You see, that's what happens when you have preaching. That's what happens when you have counseling. They take what they hear and they're able to put it through the grid of their faith and, and say, okay, I believe. But pastor, I would wonder if you were outside the door of your church on Sunday and quizzed people as to what they heard you preach, what would they tell you? Because most people forget it by the time they hit the door. So what are they not doing? They're not applying that to themselves. They're not taking the message and saying, oh, this is how I need to change. And I got to tell you, this is just as a dad. When my kids were little, we go home on Sunday afternoon and we take what Pastor John MacArthur taught that day and for my second grader and third grader and we go home and we'd okay, how do we apply that to our life? I once told John MacArthur on that and he says, oh, so you're roasting me on Sunday afternoon, huh? (laughs) No, no, no. We're trying to take that message and apply it to us. You see, because if that message is given, you're not just trying to give out facts and all of this kind of stuff. You're trying to do that so people change. It's the same thing in the counseling office. You're telling those people these things because you want to see them change. You're not just there for a conversation. If you're just there for a conversation, you could actually become a psychologist and make $75 a half an hour. That's what you could do. They need to understand what has actually happened when they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Their life is to change. Now, I'm not looking for perfection, folks, and please understand that. But that's what's supposed to be happening. You see, both the Bible teacher and the counselor need to have an accurate knowledge of the doctrine of regeneration and what happens at regeneration. That person is to change. Uh, I once worked with a man who was, I wouldn't say he's a drug addict, but he would take any drug that you possibly could give him so that he could get high. And if he couldn't find a drug, he'd get some alcohol and get high. And you know when he started planning it? When he woke up in the morning. Okay, when can I get that? Maybe at lunch I can go get myself a bottle and, and drink some and go to work, back to work, and, and, and then he'd be high for the rest of the day. That, that to me is not regeneration, folks. So I said to him once, I said, so I want to have the name and address of your drug dealer. He said, Bill, you want to get high? No, I don't want to get high. I don't want to get high. I've got an undercover drug um, police officer in my fellowship group. He actually sits in that corner over there. And I said, I want to give him the name so that he can take care of it. I can't do that. They'll kill me. They're not going to know it was you. That, to me, then shows true repentance. See, because he'd be in my office every week, and he'd be crying what he did that week what he stole that week. Maybe it was from his kids. Maybe it was from his wife. Maybe it was from his in-laws. So that he could go sell those things to get more money to go buy more drugs. Show me. Just don't tell me. I want, I want you to show me what you do by faith. You see, if your counseling ministry is only trying to get make feels, uh, folks feel better about themselves, that's self-esteem. It's not Christ-esteem. And that's where we need to be pointing people to. I don't want them to feel better about themselves. Like I said before, 
I'm here about not making you happy. I'm here about making you holy. A good definition of the doctrine of regeneration can be found in Burkhoff's uh, theology book where he says this, that act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in the man and the governing, governing disposition of the soul is made holy. That means the, the things that we do now are toward holiness. That's not going to be perfect. But that's what I want to do. I want to be pleasing to God, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. My ambition, Paul says, with a homer abroad, is to be pleasing to him. Is that my ambition? Or am I still looking out for a bill and trying to have a good time? Is it another party? You see, the characteristics of regeneration are explained by Burkhoff as well in that same uh, theology book. He says this, quote, Regeneration consists in the implanting of the principle of the new spiritual life in man, gives birth to a life that moves in a Godward direction. In principle, this change affects the whole man. In a sense... It's lordship salvation. He now becomes lord of your life. And now, I, I'm stolen that from somebody else. I can't remember who. <laughs> it's lordship salvation. Is he truly lord of your life? And, and men, years ago, I, I taught in the uh, some, uh, Shepherds Conference, and I was teaching on... Uh, pastors being pure. And when I got up to the pulpit, I said to myself, are these pastors here to help other men or is this about themselves? I found out soon after because I started counseling some of those pastors on the telephone. It was about them. So I, I don't take it for granted that all of you are walking in holiness. But you too, if you're truly a believer should be regenerated in that place of, of by faith, grasping onto God and saying, I, I'm, I'm here with you. Help me. Do what I need to do. You see, when we come to Christ, though that old man is not only dead, it needs to be put off because he's still there with you. The shadow is still there, if you want to call it that. See, when a counselee comes in, they generally are going in the wrong direction. I think we'd all agree with that. They need to set themselves on a new path and we're trying to give them that new path. They need to be putting off the old man, the, the weak man, and begin to walk in newness of life. Second Corinthians 4, 6. You can jot that down or you can turn there, whatever you want to do. It's up to you. But Second Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Is that there in our hearts? Is that in my counselee's heart? Is he truly given himself to Christ? All of self. Regeneration is God's act. It's not ours. We can't do anything about it. Salvation from the divine perspective, so to speak, if you want to put it in those terms. Regeneration, though, is instantaneous. He does it. I don't know exactly when it was that I came to faith in Christ. I know it was in a hotel room in Montreal, Canada, on a business trip. And I got on my knees when I'm reading the Gideon Bible. And, and, and I said, God, I don't know why you're after me. I have no clue. Now, this was after many, many times hearing the gospel before that. 
Why are you after me? I'm even in a foreign country and you're coming after me. Regeneration is instantaneous. It's unconscious. It's undetectable. But this is not conversion. Conversion is our act. Do I see that in my counselee's life? Salvation from the human perspective. Conversion is progressive. It's conscious and it's detectable. I always say to... uh, my Sunday school class, or not always, but sometimes I, I said, if you're flatline, what is it? If you're not growing, you're not going. More than likely, and I got a doctor that sits up here in front, and I said, doctor, if that happens with your heart thing, he says, you're dead. You've got to be growing. You've got to have some action there going on. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4? Now, this is... a picture of what the Christian walk is supposed to look like. This is what we should be doing. And it says there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, where we're going to go down just a little bit there in Ephesians 4. It says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. I can't do the same things that I used to do. I've got to act differently. They've got to see that I'm different. Man, I was in sales. And, and I was a guy that slapped you on the back and told you were wonderful all the time, you know, and took you out to lunch, took you out to dinner, whatever it was. And, and, and now I'm a Christian, and I can't do the same things that I used to do because my customers are either female or homosexuals. And how do I work with homosexuals now? And I told them I'm a Christian. This is what I believe. And they knew that I still love them as much as I did before. But now I love them, really love them. The right way. Because it's about their eternity. It's not what they do today. And so that's how I let them know I become a Christian. It says here that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. You see, the unbeliever walks in mindlessness. They, they don't use their, the, the given gifts that they've been given by God to think through what the outcome could happen of the things that they do. It says in verse 18, being darkened in their own understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Now, if my counselees show that, that they're ignorant, they show that they are um, hardness of heart, then why are we meeting? Why are we meeting? I will let them know. If there's no growth, why are we meeting? You should be growing in some sense. They don't sometimes like it. They even call me mean. I said, I'm from New York, so I can get away with it. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. I know you men are working with someone who's into pornography. And he keeps going back to it, and he keeps going back to it, and he keeps going back to it, and he keeps going back to it. Maybe even his wife has come to you and said, I want to divorce my husband because of this. I mean, I've had that. I've had that where, where, you know, the wife walks in and the husband's looking at pornography. And she's disappointed again. And of course, he's disappointed after. 
Not before, but he's disappointed after. What do we do with that? That tells me that there's so much impurity, so much greediness in this person that maybe they don't have the Spirit of God. Now you say, but, but what if he repents? But gentlemen, that should be happening even before. Why? Because he has the power of God in him if he's a Christian. He has the Holy Spirit resident in him. He has the instruments of, the whole, of, of God's holy word that he can turn to and not go down that path. That's what he has. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation is overtaking you, such as is common to man. And God is faithful, and he will make a way of escape. Fine, I work with him in counseling. What's a way of escape? Put your computer up in the kitchen so your kids can see it. That's a way. But there'll always be another way to find something. We know that. But our hearts have to be changed. And that's what we want to see in counseling. This is evangelism in some cases. I've, I've had guys say to me, do you, do you think I'm a Christian? I said, I'm not the one who determines that. What you do, not that you are going to get yourself saved, but what you do gives me an indication of what you are. And right now, I'm not assured of this. I can let you know that. Here we are, it says here, and, and they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, which just read. But you, you, if you're a Christian, did not learn Christ in this way. When you hear the gospel and you come to Jesus Christ, you hear that gospel and you know that there is a way of salvation. You give yourself to him. And I I love this verse 21. This is New American Standard, by the way. It says, if. What a critical word right there. What, What a huge word right there. Two letter, huge word. If indeed you have heard him. If indeed you have been taught in him. Just as the truth is in Jesus. If you are counseling with somebody over and over again. And you keep giving them the truth. Can we say this? If indeed you have heard him. Maybe you don't have your ears open. Maybe you are not taking that word and applying it to your life and to your situation. I think all of that is important, men. And again, I am not the inspector of election. Okay? You know, because they wouldn't let me. I'm a Republican. Um, But you see, just realize this. We, We cannot be that person, but we can say, what about you? What about you? What are you doing with this? If you hear this, you know this, what are you doing with it? Let's move on for a little bit here. Burkhoff said this, When one embraces Christ by faith, he has a deep conviction of truth and the reality of the object of faith. Jesus becomes your all in all. There's, there's nothing else that you want to... I Want me to say it again? Um, oh, I just heard somebody say you want to say it. Um, He's your all in all, right? And and there's nothing else. And and we need to, I mean, I teach that to my children, that dad's not number one, mom's not number one, family's not even number one, God is number one. He's your all in all. Back to Ephesians. Ephesians. That in reference to your former manner of life, you are laying aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the seats. 
you know, when you're an unbeliever, you form habits. And I understand that. Those habits sometimes are very difficult to break. I had an OCD young lady come in, and, and she's got this habit of driving around the block seven times to make sure she didn't drive over somebody. And I said to her, by going around seven times, you have more opportunity to go run over somebody. I mean, it seemed very logical to me. I don't know. But she had that habit. Gentlemen, do you have any habits that you've been difficult for you to break? Yeah, of course. I even tried to form a habit while I was doing this with her. And, and, and I'd go out to my car. And, and when I get to my car, I'd go back to my door to make sure I locked it. Now, I got to tell you, gentlemen, I know I locked the, car, the, the house door every day. But I did that for two weeks and I said, okay, that's enough. Got to my car the next day. And, and I wanted to go back to my house. So I have empathy for those who have habits. But I know you can break those habits. I dealt with somebody else who was on drugs, painkillers. And he's up nine to ten pills a day or whatever. And we just took him down slowly but slowly but slowly. And then, of course, I let him know, this life is full of pain. You have to expect pain. I stayed an extra five minutes in the shower this morning because there's pain. <laughs> you know, we, we all have that. But that's life. Over here, refer- that in reference to the former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. That's what we should be doing. And verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, what is that, gentlemen? That's putting your mind into the scriptures, God's holy word, memorizing scripture, meditating on scripture. That's what it's about, listening to scripture, listening to it preached. But that's what you have to do. You have to renew your mind instead of listening to the world. You deserve a break today. (laughs) Yeah, we, we can listen to that kind of trash and we believe you know i had a hard day at the job today my wife is not loving me so i go do this go do that you see if we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness am i am i i don't want to misquote peter be the last person you want to misquote but we've been given everything to pertaining to life and godliness we should be able to overcome those things but i've got this couple that don't get along and they can't solve their problem and they come back the next week and the next week and the next week or I've got this guy who's looking at porn and he comes back week after week after week. Then that's what should be happening is this would be put off. We wouldn't continue any longer in these things. And again, I'm not looking for perfection. Even some of my friends out there that went to TMS with me will start to accuse me of those kinds of things. You know I don't mean that because Bill's not perfect. What we do need to look at, okay, is the scriptures at each and every point and point out where we're failing in those scriptures and that we can do better. Whether I attend church even a fine Bible teaching church, and I'm going to believe that's what we have here is fine Bible teaching churches, I cannot have confidence there in my salvation. One thing that we learned here at the COVID time, we had a bunch of what we call grace refugees come. People that had nothing to do with grace in the church start to come to our church because our doors were open. 
we get to meet people from all different backgrounds. The people here doesn't mean that they're saved just because they're here. You see, even if you walk the aisle, you write on a card, maybe you even put the date in your Bible left when you got saved. Don't have confidence in that. And I tell my counselees, you can't have confidence in that. But this is what you can't have confidence in. Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now that tells me there's progression. That means there's laying aside of the old self. That means killing your sin. That's what you're doing damage to is the sin. Jesus Christ became everything to Paul at his conversion. Why would it be different today? Should it be different today? No. When a person gets converted, Christ should become everything to them. Those things Paul counted as loss, all the things that were gained to him at one point in his life, whatever those things were, they're they're now loss. You see that in Philippians 3, 7. Paul, in essence, realizes that he has one big, he is one big walking sign, minus sign. I have to give that to my professor here at the seminar. He always used to say that. A walking minus sign. Not because what he achieved prior to Christ was evil, but because it didn't add up to anything. Before Christ, it doesn't add up to anything. Going to Grace Church doesn't amount to bupkis. We have any shepherds here? Okay. It means nothing. Turd. That's all it is. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't add up to anything in the accounting of God. He doesn't care what church you go to. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. None of those things. Those are not meritorious to Him. The sinner you and I, are to abandon our pride. That's what we have to do. Abandon our pride. That's how we gain the humility of Christ. And we see in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, put on humility. Do not think more highly of yourself than someone else. That's what we're supposed to do. At Paul's conversion, he suffered loss because he no longer had status with Judaism. His position of power evaporated and his opportunity for material gain ended. He gained ostracism. He gained bloody injury, he, bodily injury. He, he gained uh, death threats. He gained rejection. That's what he got for coming to Christ. You know, I think it's almost unfortunate that we don't have that today. I have my friends over in Ukraine who now are experiencing war. The seminary that I used to teach at over there had 25 students and now it has 100. How does that happen? It happens through war, persecution. You have to define yourself as who are you living for. And by the way, just so you know, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I believe it. not the war is coming here, but persecution is coming here. It's not that far away. Paul's conversion produced radical change. All his personal, social relationships were changed. Because of Christ, everything changed. And that whatever was gained is now loss. There is a cost. 
And I think we sometimes miss this. There's a cost to coming to Christ. It's not that we get into the church and we become comfortable there and and all of that kind of stuff. That's not coming to Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. I think Matthew gives us a picture that it's not easy. It's not comfort. It's not uh, comfort-filled words or all of those kinds of things. But in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32... The apostle says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be members of his own household. There's a division that happens. Gentlemen, we know that. We probably have preached this. What, what division does our counselee have in setting himself against the world? Or does he still have a, a, an association with that world? Does he still love those things of the world? That's where we do our evangelism in our church. Because I believe, just as Spurgeon did, and we don't have a way to detect it, but there appears to be a lot of people that are satisfied with their Christianity and they're not Christians. And I believe, okay, now again, this is me, Bill Shannon, that the people that are brought into my office are brought there by God. I know that. And they're given that trouble Because God is wanting me to say to them, you don't have a problem, you are the problem. And you need to get yourself right with God. Now, I do that in a very nice, calm way. I really do. But true conversion is talking about repentance of sin, turning from sin. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that there's a godly sorrow from turning from this sin. And we could get into that and spend the rest of the time there, but we don't have that time. But I just want you to understand, that's what should be happening in the heart of these men and these women that are coming in for help. You see, the change is something that is rooted in the work of regeneration. It's affected uh, and it changes our conscious life Our thoughts, our opinions, our desires, our volitions, everything that we think about has to change or it does change. What it is about money or whatever subject you want to throw out there, that is called conviction and God brings you that conviction. See, salvation is the issue and we need to understand what occurs here. That is true evangelism, what happens in your counseling room. In salvation, God not only declares the person righteous, but makes a person righteous. God gives them the ability to hate their sin and to flee from it at the same time. Salvation includes all the work that God has put into the person's life and they are changed. They're not just, are they saved by grace, but now they have the grace to avoid sin. It's not just saved by grace, but now they have the grace from God to avoid sin. 
do they choose that? Romans 6.2, you don't need to turn there, but it says this, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If we are truly saved, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? That speaks that the true believer is dead to sin. This is a fact, not a wish. It's not a hope, but it's a reality. That's what our relationship with Jesus Christ does. We are now in Christ, and we are counted dead to sin. John MacArthur said this. I don't remember what book I got it out of, but I got it out of one of his books. It says this, quote, God not only declares us righteous, but he also begins to cultivate righteousness in our lives. Thus, salvation is not only a forensic declaration, it is a miracle of conversion, of transformation. There is no such thing as a true convert to Christ who is justified, but who is not being sanctified. Once you are justified, you are now being sanctified. Now, they may need help, you know, do this, do that, that kind of thing, and, and counseling, but they should be growing. As a matter of fact, the Romans passage tells us in, in Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. See, because now we're slaves to Christ. This, this whole idea is all permeates throughout the scriptures and even into the Old Testament, which I don't necessarily go to very often, but it's all throughout the, the, the New Testament. If we are new creatures, man, that's good news. But we need to act like it. Our counselees need to act like it if you're a new creature. If we have this new life, this new disposition, as Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Can, can I say that about all of my counselees? Gentlemen, I cannot. But I challenge them. Why isn't that happening? Why isn't that happening? There's something missing. We no longer have a, the same old active sin nature. The propensity towards that sin is now given over. But our counselees, some of them continue to wallow in their sin. And I want to take all of my counselees and make them strong enough so that they can become counselors. That's what I want to do. Not just bring donuts on Sunday. And again, I want to announce, I am not looking for perfection. Not looking for perfection, but I'm looking for a direction. A direction that tells me their heart and their mind are set on the things of God, not on themselves. You see, if sinful tendencies have not been eradicated, but they are no longer the dominating force, that's, that's a good thing. That gives me an indication that they're walking with God. I uh, heard it once said, quote, and I don't remember where I got this from, so I know some of you can probably type it in and find out exactly where it comes from. We are new creatures, holy and redeemed, but wrapped in graves clothes of unredeemed flesh. That's what we are. When someone comes in for counseling, they need to be challenged to grow. If they're unbelievers 
and some will declare that they're unbelievers. You need to teach them the gospel. See, that's evangelism. My son-in-law used to be the local outreach pastor here. He's now on the East Coast. And I used to say to him, I do more evangelism than you do. Because they, they keep coming to me and looking for help. What is Saving Faith? Burkhoff said this, Saving Faith may be defined as a certain conviction wrought in the heart of, by the Holy Spirit as to the truth of the gospel and a hearty reliance, that is a trust, on the promises of God in Christ. Uh, the book of James talks about the proper kind of faith. And John MacArthur, in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, said this, James describes spurious faith as pure hypocrisy, mere cognitive assent, devoid of any verifying words, no different from the demon's belief. Obviously, there is more to saving faith than merely conceding a set of facts. Faith without works is useless. Um, there were some people on the freeway coming in here that showed some faith. They had faith that you were awake when you were driving next to them. They had faith that their uh, brakes were going to work when they got on that freeway. That's not saving faith. That's not saving faith. So much more to say. But I want to leave a couple of minutes for questions if we have time here. Thomas Watson, I'm going to skip a a few things here. Thomas Watson wrote a little book called The Doctrine of Repentance because repentance obviously is change. I I remember that man who was always into drugs. I'd bring him before the elders and say, he's into drugs again, he's doing drugs again, and it's again and again and again. I I get weary with that. I mean, he was even in my office once crying his head off that he had stolen money and, and then after he left my office, he went out to the, to the street when we could see the street out there and we didn't have that fence up. And I came out of my office and I see him there and he's smoke, smoking a bowl of crack cocaine. And I just looked at him. You've got to be kidding me. But he was in my office 10 minutes before that, repenting, crying. That wasn't repentance. That was an act. That was an act. And some of them know how to act real well. Watson said, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Visibly reformed. There is a change. There is a change. You know that couple that I mentioned to you before? I had to call up my mentor, Bob Smith, and love the man. He confronted me with that thought that maybe they weren't genuinely converted. And so I had to come up with a plan now. How am I approach them after 40 weeks of counseling with them to tell them I don't think they're a believer? I mean, where do you go? I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this. I'm praying about this thing. How, how do I inform them that I don't know that they're a Christian? So I came up with the idea of taking them through the fruit of the Spirit. And I said in your marriage, do you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? There are nine fruit there. I got 18 no's. Pretty profound there. And I went to the deeds of the flesh. And I went through those slowly. And I asked them, do you have enmities? Yes. Do you have strife? Yes. Do you have outbursts of anger? Yes. Do you have disputes? Yes. Do you have dissensions? Yes. Do you have factions? Yes. 
And I, I sat there and I, I said, do I finish the rest of that verse? The rest of that verse says, and those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say that to me and I'm begging God to save me. I'm begging God to do whatever he needs to do. I said that to this man. He became indignant. He called me a fruit picker. And I said, you know, by God's providence this morning, I had my devotions in John 15 where it says, you shall know them by their fruit. And I took them there and I read that. It didn't change anything. It didn't change anything. I would like to say, oh, he got converted there, you know, I baptized him, all that. No. He kept thinking he was right. I think sometimes when we let people into the church and they're there for so long that they become immune to the gospel. That's why they do need to be challenged with it. Are you truly Jesus Christ? Are you truly his child? Now, obviously, this does not mean that Christians don't sin. I know plenty of those people. (laughs) But we need to challenge those who are in our church. It's not just about letting them in the door. Years ago, I, I actually went out to candidate at a church back on the East Coast, where I'm from. I preached two messages, morning, evening, then the elders sat down with me to, to do the interview. And, and, and I, I, I'm asking them questions as well, because I'm not going to jump in a pool without knowing how deep it is. And so I asked them this question. I said, have you ever done church discipline? They looked at one another and said, we came close once. I said, yeah, it's a 22-year-old church. I said, can you please tell me how, what, what that looked like? And they said, well, we had this couple sitting on the front row who were living together. And they were there for six or eight months. And we, we really were going to talk to them about their living together. I became indignant. I'm sorry. You, you just let two people not hear the gospel to be confronted with their sin of living together, that that was sin and that they have a good chance of continuing to go in that direction and go to hell. Uh, they didn't call me up to come to the church. But men, you see, that's what we do sometimes. We let them sit there. We let them stay. We let them, we let them be when we really shouldn't let them be. Because as Hebrews 13 tells me, I'm going to have to give an account to those people who are under my care. And you're going to have to give an account for those people who are under your care. And if you're uh, uh, somebody who's serving alongside a pastor, encourage him as much as you can. Get involved in doing those kinds of things and, and, and giving him a respite wherever you possibly can. And getting more people involved in doing biblical counseling. Because I believe the more that you do, the more that people will come. Well, we got a waiting list here. And, and I have 40, 50, 60 um, counselors that are doing counseling for me here, plus the pastors that do counseling. So people are knocking on the door and saying, can you help me? Um, 
We've been living together, but we can't do it anymore. And they're unsaved. That's where you have such an opportunity for evangelism. And so I just want to encourage you to do that. I'm going to close in prayer. And Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord God, your word is pure. It's, it's spotless, Lord God. Let it continue to work in each of our hearts, even throughout this conference. And, and uh, Lord, we give you glory through all that you have given to us. We are, have a bounteous a wealth of uh, information and opportunity. And this world is dying and going to hell. And we pray, Lord God, that we can call them back from that. We pray this in your name. Amen.